By all accounts, Emmanuel Boyd Jr. was a generous fella. 66-year-old, lived in Champaign, opened his doors to anybody who needed a place to visit or a place to sleep. It's that generosity, please think, that might have led to his death in 2006. He was murdered. In her 11th Cold Cases podcast, News Gazette Media's Carol Varell takes a look at Boyd's murder, where police are in solving the case. This from Boyd's brother. If I knew who it was, I would be in prison right now. Come back after this message to listen to Varel's podcast. Hey, Jim Rosso, News Gazette Media Vice President, reminding you that we have a ton of podcasts available at newsgazette.com every day of the week. From Dave Gentry's morning show to Scott Beatty's news hour to Brian Barnhart's Penny for Your Thoughts. Head to our website, newsgazette.com, and search for podcasts. Charles Franklin of Rantoul says it's still difficult to talk about his oldest brother, Emmanuel Boy Jr. He can still hear his mother's screams when he called her to tell her about what happened to him more than a decade ago. It was in the morning on February 15, 2006, when a friend found Emmanuel's body in his home on Champaign's north side at 1202 Clock Street. At first, more than once, police thought they had solid suspects, but each time, that trail went nowhere. The investigation into the murder of 66-year-old Emmanuel Boyd went cold. Charles did not want to comment on tape for this podcast, but he did want you to know that Emmanuel was a kind-hearted, good man. He says if you needed something or a place to sleep, Emmanuel was there for you, that he had opened his house up to anyone his whole life. He was just like that. Charles also says there's no need for whatever they did, saying his brother didn't have a whole lot of money in his pocket. The Champagne detective who worked the case, Joe Johnston, says everyone he talked to also described Emmanuel as someone who was quiet and kept to himself. But at the same time, he was a generous person with a good heart. We also learned from talking to people that some people tended to take advantage um, of his good nature. He was, he was a little bit of a, an easy mark, if you will, for people that would maybe come and take money from him or things of that nature. One of the things that came up during the course of the investigation was uh, one of his counselors told us that he'd been beat up about a week before uh, he was found dead, uh, and, and he just said some young kids that did it. So we, we never did track any of that down, but apparently it wasn't all that uncommon for for people, he was a good-hearted person, and it wasn't uh, uncommon, unfortunately, for people to take advantage of that and, and maybe rough him up and take his money every now and then. Did he live by himself? He did. He lived there on, on Clock Street by himself. He was bouncing back and forth between there and, and the Time Center for financial reasons. Um, part, part of it was it was, it was in January, as the dead of winter, and was having trouble keeping up with some of his bills. Um, so he would go back and forth between there and, and the Time Center. So a lot of times he would stay at, stay at the Time Center at night and then go back to, to his home during the day. Nothing appeared to be out of the ordinary in Emmanuel's life in the days before someone ended his life. He had um, had a friend who would come pick him up and take him to the Circle K on a, on a fairly regular basis, the one at Neal in Columbia. And 
he hadn't been seen for two or three days, kind of depending on who you talk to. Some people said they hadn't seen him in a couple of days. Some people said it had been three or four days since they'd last seen him. But the people who saw him were uh, the people that told us that were some neighbors that saw him just coming and going from a house. Uh, again, the Time Center had seen him within a few days before that. He'd stopped in there. So he was just uh, his, basically his normal routine. He would just kind of hang out during the day. The friend would come get him every now and then, take him over to Circle K, get a sandwich, maybe a soda, and go back to his place. So it, w- it wasn't anything out of the ordinary from what we know what ordinary was for him. Obviously not talking to him, we don't know, but uh, from what the neighbors and the friends say, everything seemed to be pretty normal for him. Johnston says a neighbor saw Emanuel over the weekend. It was either Saturday or Sunday. The neighbor couldn't remember. No one could say they saw him after that. Then, a couple of days later, on that following Wednesday, February 15th, a friend made a terrible, heartbreaking discovery. Another friend, not the one that was driving him around, but a different friend, just came over to see him, and the door was locked, um, which was kind of uncommon, but not real uncommon. Let me back up. Door was locked, couldn't get him to come to the door, so I went and talked to a neighbor and said, hey, have you seen Emmanuel? Now I haven't seen him for a couple of days. And the friend had noticed there was a a window on the south side of the house that was the storm window had been taken off of. And he knew, he said sometimes that Emmanuel would come and go through the window because it wasn't every now and then Emmanuel would lose his keys. So it wasn't uncommon. So that's why, you know, the door being locked or unlocked wasn't either strange or unstrange either way. It was just, hey, the door's locked. Well, maybe use the window. So the friend climbed in the window, saw him, and then came back out the window and called the police. When officers arrived, they, too, went through the window to get into the house. They found Emanuel's body on the couch. Someone had struck him in the head with something. They called the crime scene division. The house was in uh, was in disarray, and not as a result of the crime. It, it was just, uh, in, in general, kind of a messy house. So um, we were able to collect what we believed to be the murder weapon, and they were able to collect some some DNA off of the uh, off of that. And then a lot of the material that was around him, and of course, all that was packaged and gathered and packaged up and sent off to the to the state police crime lab for processing. Uh, there there really really wasn't much there at the scene to collect and process. It was a, you know, I, I've said it before, this this case was just frustrating from the beginning. There was just so little to go on. It was just a frustrating case. Are you at liberty to say what the object was that he was hit with? No, and we're not uh, not trying to be all sneaky and secretive, but that's something that uh, only the killer would know. So we were wanting to keep that to ourselves. Did it appear that there was more than one person in the house at the time, or could you tell? Couldn't really tell, but like I say, it didn't appear that there was a struggle. Charles says he was filled with rage for the first two to three weeks when it first happened. And today, you can see he lives with deep pain, along with nagging frustration that whoever killed Emmanuel hasn't been caught. He says he just has one question for whoever did this. Why? Charles also says if he knew who did this, he himself would be in prison right now. The autopsy showed Emanuel died from blunt force trauma, but Champaign County Coroner Dwayne Northrop says it's not clear how long Emanuel had been dead when he was found. Detective Johnston. It's my understanding the guy was, was killed over nothing. 
I mean, I, he, he didn't bother anybody. Um, he wasn't the one out beating people up. He wasn't the one taking advantage of people. He was the victim of getting beat up. He was the victim of being taken advantage of. And somebody took the ultimate advantage of him and took his life. So that's just not right. At the end of the day, I don't care how you shake, jiggle, or dance. That's just not right. Johnston says the frustrating case raised hopes more than once that he had found the person who did this. But each time, it led to dead ends. Again, a frustrating case, and, and part of the reason that, that I keep referring to how frustrating it was, one name came up, the same name came up three times from three different people within the first matter of hours, um, which told me, hey, we've, we've, we've got a pretty good case. Um, we, we have a solid lead. We have something to go on. And apparently this person had had run-ins with the manual in the past. Uh, they had a history of, of being violent with each other or towards each other. Um, so I thought, well, we're, we're on the right track. That person was locked up in the Department of Corrections at the time this happened. So I went from, you know, having a, a, what I felt was a solid lead right from the get-go to nothing. And then after that, everything was just hearsay. Well, I heard this and I heard that. Detective Rodden and Sergeant Ryan went over to Springfield and interviewed some people over there that were said to have had information. They weren't around. They weren't in town. They had been back in town over the weekend, but they were at a party and and a birthday party during the day. We verified that they were at that party during the day, so there's no reason to think that they had anything to do with it. You know, we, we picked up another person who had, this was, I think, the next day. And again, I'm going from memory, within a day or two, uh, we picked up another person that had what appeared to be blood on their jeans, and apparently they'd been in the neighborhood and acting strange. Uh, picked them up, interviewed them. Again, thought, well, we've, we've got a pretty good lead here. Um, they're in the neighborhood and they're acting strange. They got what appears to be blood. Um, the person said, no, I didn't have anything to do with it. They denied it. We sent the uh, blood to the, the, took the jeans and sent it to the crime lab, and it came back. It wasn't blood. So it, it was just, just frustration after frustration. And it's frustrating. Yes, yes. Especially when you get your hopes up that, hey. Yes, we, we, you know, we've got another lead. You know, like I said, that first one, when I got those, the first name, I'm like, okay, well, that's something to go with. And then that name showed up two more times. I thought, boy, we're in good shape. person was locked up. And then this person, the same thing. And this person came in voluntarily, and they talked to us, and they, they, they were living in an apartment in Urbana. They let us go to their apartment in Urbana and let us search the place and willingly turned over their clothes. I mean, this person couldn't have been any more cooperative, and it was nothing. The investigation was tough enough, not much evidence to work with, plus Emanuel's generosity and his nature to open his house to visitors made it even more difficult to solve the case. I think he was generous, but he was so open that people took advantage of it, but he allowed to be taken advantage of. One of the stories that came up, and and we have no proof of this, but one of the people had told us that if you bought him a, a pint of vodka, he would let you come and use his place. He'd let him crash at his place, let him stay at his place. So, and some of the neighbors did talk about how they'd see a lot of different people coming and going. So that kind of uh, supported that that theory. In my opinion, I think that's probably what happened. I think one of the people that came in, whether they brought him a pint of vodka or whatever, um, I think an argument ensued. They wanted more money. They wanted something else, and he wasn't willing to give it to them, and, and they ended up killing him for it. That's that's the my theory. 
Don't know if it's accurate, but it's my theory. Johnston says police hadn't had much contact with Emanuel, and the times they did, they were very minimal, nothing serious. Did you ever think that it could have been related to drug sales or anything like that? I mean, it sounds like he didn't have much money, so... No, we, had, we didn't have any reason to believe that he was involved in any, any drug trade, anything like that. So nobody, top to bottom, there wasn't anything in the house, there wasn't any of the neighbors or anybody that we talked to. Yeah, the coming and going of traffic, foot traffic, would, would kind of lead that way, but talking to the neighbors, they said, no, it wasn't that kind of foot traffic. So we had no reason to believe it was drug-related. Emanuel's brother, Charles, says while Emanuel wasn't into drugs or anything else, he did like his liquor. And he wonders if his brother was asleep or intoxicated when this happened because he knew how to box, that when he was in the Navy, he was a champion in his weight division. Detective Johnston retired from the Champaign Police Department in 2015 after 25 years of service, most of those years as a detective. But he says the case remains open and any leads would be pursued. A homicide is never closed, it, unless it's cleared by arrest or whatever, whatever the case may be. If it's unsolved, it remains open. Periodically, I, I would go back and look at it just kind of look at names and see if anything jumped out at me. I think all homicide detectives do that every now and then. During the time that you were investigating the case, you were with the police department, did any leads come in over the years that you thought, oh, you know, here's some really good new information yeah. to pursue? No, no, and again, frustration. And, and that, that's not all that uncommon. It's, it's, I would say it's more uncommon when something like that does come in. I actively worked it for probably six months. Unfortunately, the, and that's the hardest, one of the hardest parts about being a detective is learning when that you have to set it aside and move on because your other cases are stacking up. And, and obviously a murder case is probably one of the most important cases you can work, in my opinion, next to child abuse or you know, child sexual assault. But to me, that's, that's the top tier. And, and I, know, I know into May, well into May, I was, I was still working on it, and it just, there was just wasn't anything to go on. That has to be tough because I know that detectives are always thinking about these cases that are unsolved and where them. Yes. Basically. Yes. I drive by that address. The house is now gone, um, but I drive by that address about four times a week. Again, and I've been retired for four and a half years, and this happened in you know 2006. It's not uncommon for me to look over and go, yeah, just kind of shake my head and shrug my shoulders and go, damn it, what, what did I miss? Did I did I miss something? What did I miss? What happened? A 66-year-old man who lived by himself, who was described as a good man, in his nature all his life to have people around him, who maybe was a little too trusting. Did any of this lead to his death? What happened that day Emanuel died? Who did this to him? A cold case that has frustrated Champaign police right from the start. Maybe advances in technology can shed new light on the case. Champaign Police Lieutenant Nate Rass says he's reaching out to the crime scene unit to review the case. Maybe you know something that is crucial to cracking the case. Police want to hear from you. And in the end, find the killer or killers and bring justice for Emanuel's death and some kind of closure to his family. Basically, if somebody can just come forward and say, A, I did it, <laughs> would be wonderful, or B, um, hey, I talked to so-and-so, 
they told me, and, and again, we, we, you know, they're going to need more than hearsay. Uh, we're going to need somebody that, that has intimate knowledge, whether they're the suspect or whether the suspect told them. That's what, that's what this case is, how this case is going to get solved. I think it's going to take somebody just to come forward and say, hey, here's what I know, here's how I know it. There may be somebody who was told something 13 years ago, saw something 13 years ago, didn't want to talk about it then. Uh, they were in love back then, now they're not in love, or you know, whatever the case may be. Or it could even be a case where somebody used something to hit him, but maybe didn't intend to kill him. Exactly. Yeah, it, it could be, hey, you know, give me your money. No, bang, they hit him, take the money, and as far as they know, he's sitting on the couch with a headache and come to find out he died. You know, that, that, that's obviously a possibility. If you have any information, call Champaign Investigations Division at 217-403-6900. 217-403-6900. Or you can remain anonymous by calling Crime Stoppers at 373-TIPS. Just come forward. If, if you know something, just, just please talk to the police. And if you think it's nothing, please talk to the police and let them decide it's nothing. That happened throughout this whole case. And, and if somebody called me tomorrow and said, hey, I've got some information. I would set up a meeting. If, if it was somebody that I knew from, from back when I worked at an apartment and they were, weren't comfortable talking to the police directly but would talk with me, I will meet them with the police and be more than happy to sit down and talk to them. If you know something, please tell somebody. This guy did nothing to anybody. Oftentimes, you know, we hear about whether we want to admit it or not, we hear about people that get shot and killed for whatever reason, and you think, well, it's, that's a tragedy they died, but had they not been in that situation, had they not been doing this, maybe they wouldn't be dead. This guy's sitting in his house, and he's not selling drugs. He's not, he's not fencing stolen material. He's not sexually assaulting people. This guy's just sitting in his house and gets killed. Nobody deserves that. So if you know something, please tell somebody. I'm Carol Varell.